Hello and welcome to episode 20 of the Waters Wavelength Podcast. My name is Dan DeFrancesco and I am the Deputy Editor of Cellside Technology. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Anthony Malikian, U.S. Editor at Waters Technology. Good to be here. So, to start, as you know, I joked around about uh, last a couple weeks ago, I always like to ask Anthony what uh, we'd like to talk about each week. So, Anthony, what would you like to talk about? Well, this week uh, we are going to start, uh, we've been unrolling the features for the unveiling. June issue, unveiling, unveiling the features for the June issue, I like it, um, got a couple of uh, good things there, each writer had, um, each reporter had uh, one story, um, I did a cover story, we'll talk about that a little bit, um, and we'll talk about Dancer in a little bit, um, but you know, a couple things to look out for, uh, Amelia David uh, did a case study looking at State Street's completion of its Proof of concept uh, for FIBO, the Financial Industry Business Ontology, uh, which is conceptual ontology designed to define financial industry terms, definitions, and synonyms. Um, that goes live on Friday. Keep an eye out for that one. Interesting stuff because there are going to be more banks that are going to be uh, latching onto this and doing their own case studies after Wells Fargo's done it now, State Street's done it, uh, more expected to do in the future. Um, we also have uh, John Brazier. Uh, he takes a look at uh, MIFID 2 coming at it from the proposed caps on waivers for dark pool trading. Um, the rule set to go into effect uh, 2018, uh, J- uh, January 3rd, uh, and it will require firms to reevaluate trading strategies or else they're going to have to suffer a ban on trading in dark pools for six months if they violate those caps, um, as is always true of any debate around dark pool trading and by extension high frequency trading uh the fight will come down to this you know is it better for everybody involved to save for the market or will this hurt liquidity and destroy the market um i'll leave it to y'all to read that story and pick up uh pick your side but i guess to start off with uh dan wrote an excellent feature uh he's been our our Deputy editor of the Consolidated Audit Trail. <laughs> so, uh, Dan, why don't you uh, tell the us about your findings there? Specialist, yeah, the cat holds a special place in my heart. It was basically the first, my first self-sourced feature uh, when I first got here. Anthony was nice. I'm so proud, my little boy's growing up. <laughs> uh, when I when I first got here. Uh, Anthony was nice enough to kind of feed me a couple features, but this is the first that I kind of found on my own. I found it interesting. We hadn't done a ton on it. I'm not going to get into what the cat is. It's a huge audit trail. If you don't know by now, there's we've written I've written a hundred things on it for our website. Check the tag. You know, I put all the links in. Read it. But this uh, particular cover story was based around how uh, April 27th a major milestone actually was achieved for the CAT, and that was that the SEC voted to publish the plan um, to the NMS plan developed by the SROs to build the CAT. Uh, they, they published that for public comment along with a notice. Now, the notice altogether with the NMS plan is 1,000... Uh, hold on once. I'm sorry. 1,000, it was, I think, 1,100, uh, it was, uh, I can't, this is bad. We don't need the exact number. 1,090 pages, mind-numbing, right? Absolutely mind-numbing to go through that many pages. Uh, So there's a ton of things that could be discussed, but the three biggest that jumped out to me that I wrote about in my feature were cybersecurity, um, the uh, redundant systems, and uh, the achievability of the timeline. So first off, cybersecurity, I'll just kind of hit through them quick and then I, Anthony, I can get your thoughts. Cybersecurity, I think is interesting because 
it sounds crazy to think that cybersecurity could be the biggest issue for something built in 2016, but it is, I mean, it sounds crazy that people would overlook it, but it really was. I mean, when you really go back to it, the cat was first conceived in 2010, okay? It was approved in 2012. Back then, we weren't worried about cybersecurity. That was a twinkle. It was a worry, but it wasn't, you know, the be-all, end-all that it is today. Yes, yes. Yeah, absolutely. So now, you know, it's it's top of the mind for CEOs, not just CTOs or, or CISOs. And uh, it's a big concern. It's going to hold a ton of data, a ton of PII. Uh, they want to make sure they're Protected. So that's that's a big concern. Um, a lot of people feel that it hasn't had adequate enough cybersecurity and the processes around that. Uh, the next one is redundant systems. The biggest one being OATS, which is run by FINRA, which is one of the three finalists for building it. Um, OATS is going to be shut down when CAT is up and running. That much is agreed upon by everyone. It's just how long OATS needs to run uh, while cat is up and running and there's a lot, you know, basically the, what was came out was that it would be two to two and a half years for, to finally retire it. And, uh, Dave Amiro from Goldman Sachs, he spoke at SIFMA ops down in Miami. He was very outspoken that that was a ridiculous timeline and that was a waste of money. And, you know, you kind of tend to have to agree with him because if they're doing, you know, they're reporting the same thing, the goal should be to shut down oats as soon as possible. And then finally, just the overall, uh, you know, likelihood of the timeline. I didn't include this in the story, but there's a funny little quip between Moore Miller from Credit Suisse Securities and uh, um, Bob Wally, who is works for Deloitte, works with a lot of the uh, the SROs. And at one point, he said, "Okay, let's go over the timeline." Bob said, "Let's go over the timeline. Let's uh, can you put up that slide? This is to the whole panel." And uh, he goes, "Can you find that slide?" And Moore goes, "Well, if it's only one slide, then that's a problem in of in and of itself." So it just goes to show you, there's a lot of uh, I'll say passive aggressiveness between the end users and uh, the uh, regulators and uh, and Deloitte. But that's kind of the three big takeaways. We can kind of go into maybe other stuff that didn't get into the feature. But Anthony, what your what's your takes as an outsider to the story? What are your biggest questions, or what do you think of it? Yeah, well, I would say that um, you know, well, first of all, the level of acronyms with CAT, NMS, SRO, and then my favorite was CAT DAG. Uh, the the yeah. Cat Development Advisory Group. Uh, it sounds like an a acronym for trying to say. Yeah, exactly. So fantastic. Uh, but I thought maybe I guess the, the biggest takeaway I took around and it was the cybersecurity uh, aspect of it. But it's kind of a new reality for regulators. Um, you know, some of these things they take for y- years just to get the rule hammered out, much less to get it all implemented. So we're seeing this now dragging on now for six, seven years that we're going on. And we still don't have, we still don't know who's the finals, who the winner's going to be, and stuff like that. So I think that it's something that's going to have to really be thought about um, as we move forward. You know, cybersecurity obviously was an issue, like you said, but it wasn't as top of mind um, in boardrooms as it is today. Um, blockchain wasn't a thing; it's now a thing. You, know, you look at machine learning is now talked about for any kind of solution that's out there. Machine learning's kind of thrown about. Machine learning while it's been around for, you know, decades, it's only really starting to become viable for, you know, regular businesses in finance to really take advantage of. Um, And, uh, you know, the capacity issues. I I remember I wrote back in February uh, something on the Superman memory crystal uh, where storage allows for 360 terabytes per disk of data capacity that can remain stable for 13.8 billion years. And at 190 degrees Celsius. It's ridiculous. We're not going to be alive. No one's going to be here in 13 billion years. 
just goes to show you though that you know the advancements that are made are so quick and are just really developing so rapidly right now um so i think that regulars are gonna have to think about that considering that they have to keep that in mind as they're putting out these projections on how much things are going to cost well if we start putting in these you know new kind of technologies building out these new technologies and all of a sudden you know five years we find that they're already inadequate you know what was the point you know where's the risk that has to be it doesn't have to be the deciding factor you can't just be numb You, you can't be paralyzed by fear of technology moving forward but it has to be something that has to be seriously considered that, you know, all these rules, they're great. They're meant to bring transparency, accuracy, you know, stability to the market. But it's technology that drives that at all now. It's not, you know, the human touch isn't as much as it was back in the day. So that's got to be kept in mind. I think that was the most interesting thing from the story. Um, I will ask you, though. So look at this. You said, you know, FinRa's Oats platform is going to have to be shut down. And there's a lot of consternation as to, you know, when is that, you know, how long is that time frame going to take? But, you know, me reading it, you know, I guess judging by the fact that it's understood that it has to be, that Oats has to be uh, sunsetted, doesn't that give FINRA a clear path to winning the contract? You know, maybe have you heard anything on this? You know, do you have any opinions as to that? I think you'd be crazy to not say FINRA is the favorite to build this. And I'm not speaking as someone that's saying they have the best plan, but just from pure simplicity of the fact that they are already running the, you know, a lot of people say that uh, Oats is the grandfather of the cat, of the cat. You know, they're very, cat is much broader, much more expansive, but they're very similar. So I think you'd be silly not to assume at least that FINRA is the front runner. And I don't speak, again, I don't speak from that saying that they have better technology, that they have a better architecture. I'm not smart enough. I haven't read all the plans in detail enough to know that. So yes, from that perspective, I think you'd be right. But I know there have been talks about, you know, people are worried that the person that's going to be running a reporting system could benefit from someone not reporting to it correctly. Meaning that FINRA, right, if they're running CAT and then they can still hand down these, they kind of want a little separation of church and state and it wouldn't be there if FINRA is still in place. So it's kind of, you know, you could almost make it uh, like the presidential election. You know, you kind of have the, and not to compare uh, theses or or FIS to Trump, but you kind of have the new guard, you know, the wanting to do new things, and then you have the the old guard, the, the, the Clintons. So I think, yeah, if Vegas is putting odds on, I would say that, uh, that FINRA is the favorite. Um, but in terms, I haven't gotten any type of a good read on, oh, this is definitely who it's going to be. But I think, yeah, I mean, I, I did this story, like I said, I did a story back in the fall of 2014, and even without knowing anything about it, Everyone that I talked to kind of said, yeah, I mean, they're the top, they're the guys you have to take down. So I think that, uh, yeah, it kind of puts them in a good position, the fact that they have this massive system that needs to be shut down. But I don't think it makes them bulletproof or immortal by any means. So I guess uh, kind of shifting gears now, we can look at um, uh, your feature. Uh, You did the cover story on Elliot Noma. Garrett Asset Management, uh, familiar face for any of you who've been to our conferences before. Interesting guy. Tell us a little bit uh, about that. Yeah, you know, with Elliot, 
known him for now several years. As I said he's been at uh, he's both been a chairman at uh, some of our events and he's been a speaker on panels. Um, interesting guy, genuinely nice guy. Uh, has a very interesting background, um, just in uh, psychomathematics um, and just kind of broadening that out and growing it into building out his own hedge fund after spending 20 years at, you know, most of the major Wall Street uh, firms that you've ever heard of. Uh, I guess that from the interesting thing about this cover story, it was one of the ones I most enjoyed. I've ever most, I've ever in 30, some of these, and I really, really enjoyed writing it. I enjoyed the layout of it and everything like that because he's not the typical kind of story that we do. Um, more often than not, we have a CIO, CTO, or CEO from one of the very largest firms in the capital markets, whether an exchange, a bank, or an asset manager. Um, so this one, you know, basically the reason why we do that is it gives our readers, gives readers an idea as to the paths that these individuals have taken, how they got to where they are, some advice that they have, if you know there are people are looking to rise up to the C levels of a major institution, um, and it also gives a look at the projects that they're working on inside of those large institutions, since I think that anybody can relate to some of the challenges that you know a JP Morgan, you know a, a Bank of America, whatever that they're going to face um, as they're building out their systems. So for this one. It, this one's a little bit of a road less taken. This is for the programmer that's just sitting there goes, I don't want to be at a bank my whole life. I don't want to be at a large asset manager and I don't want to go to an exchange. You know, one day I want to open up my own shop, test my own programming abilities, create my own strategies, implement my own technologies, run me, you know, two, three friends maybe, you know, that's about it. Very small, um, small goals. And not that they're small goals, just small size in the uh, execution of those goals. Um, for Elliot Noma, uh, like I said, he worked at all the big banks and then decided, let me go start, you know, a little asset manager, you know, a 5 million, you know, under management, tiny little place. And, but, you know, he's allowed to do his own things and create his own technologies, you know, kind of really kind of read the tea leaves and try and figure out how can I use technology with such a small staff, it was him and one other person, um, to kind of create value for investors? Um, so he's done that. Uh, he's given back the money back to investors. He's winding down the fund. He's going to either relaunch it or with a new portfolio, or he will just create a whole new firm altogether. But he's going to look at machine learning technologies uh, to launch that new fund. So he's an interesting guy. I think it's worth reading, you know, if only just to see how the other half, you know, lives. You know, there's so many small little asset managers, stuff like that. But just because they're small doesn't mean that they have intelligent things to say. Um, so I, I would, you know, say read that. But um, the, the story that I, I guess that I would be most interested to chat about is um, one of our reporters from London, uh, Agilos, um, An oh Agilos oh Andreu. Yeah, I know, right? Good Greek kid right there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he uh, looked at uh, unbun the unbundling of research and execution. So part of MIFID 2 looks at, um, you know, again, it wants to unbundle research from the execution. Basically, um, most asset managers and sell-side firms are going to have to set up uh, research, research payment accounts, uh, RPAs as they're called, uh, so that the asset managers can describe to their clients information about the uh, inducements paid to investment firms when acquiring research from third parties. Um, they have to do all this by 2018. 
So Agilos uh, talks about some of the workarounds available. Um, one of the thing, couple of things that jumped out at me, uh, Mark Pumphrey from LiquidNet, he said that over the next few years, the amount of research produced will decrease uh, because there's an enormous uh, amount of waste in the unbundled environment. Uh, with MIFID II, research providers will have to be very clear about their unique selling point, the value they are providing, and how it should be paid for. Um, we've gone down this road in fits and starts, both in London and over here in the U.S. Um, you know, it also says, you know, the, there's an, uh, the, the, the naysayers say that it's very uncapitalistic, that players should be free, uh, firms should be free to buy and sell whatever they want in a free market. Why are we throwing more and more regulation even onto something like this? Is this really necessary? Um, it might also lead asset managers to set up their own, um, that they already have the research departments, obviously, but to create their own research um, for themselves proprietarily, um, that that may be the way to go so that they can go around um, that whole uh, having to pass along uh, those research fees to investors. Um, and then there's a question of, will this rule be harmonized globally? The SEC uh, seems to be against it, um, but can you really have large asset management firms trade in London trade in New York, trade in Hong Kong, you know, wherever else in EMEA, um, and have different sets of rules. How are they going to, you know, how do you enforce something if everybody's kind of got their own thing? So there kind of seems to be a natural need to coalesce. If MIFID 2 does, you know, pull this off, then does that lead the SEC to do the same? And so U.S. firms will definitely need to be watching this, not only even if they don't have European um, business, um, it's going to be something that will be important for them going forward. Yeah. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, one thing that stood out to me. So Alistair Haig uh, of the University of Edinburgh Business School, um, who's done you know extensive research on unbundling, uh, said that – so the research industry is $20 billion, right? 90% of the revenues um, is kind of for from large investment banks, right? 4% of the market uh, is uh, independent research firms. So Haig says that uh, you know due to due to this these regulations and whatnot that four percent of the market currently held by independent research firms could easily rise up to sixteen percent within the next few years. Doesn't that seem a bit of a drastic reaction to this? Yeah, I mean, I you know it's a, it's a European thing, so I don't have enough insight on it to really give my full opinion on. It, but it does seem, you know. I think that there are different sides to this pie that are trying to stake out, you know, what they want. Sure, um, sure. So, and I, I, I mean, I don't want to, I don't, I didn't mean to put you on the spot. That was kind of more of a, just a hypothetical. It just, anytime you see something increase by four times as much within a couple of years, I mean, that's a some serious exponential growth. Uh, so, I, you know, I, I looked back, I, I tried not to write about the buy side cause that's your stuff. And I try not to ever help you out or do any you work. Stay off you. my lawn. <laughs> I try to stay off your corner, but I did do something, uh, frost consulting. Uh, I think this is a few months ago, a London based regulatory consulting, uh, and research payments firm, uh, released frost RB, which is a research valuation and budgeting software platform, uh, basically designed to help people with MIFID two firms with MIFID two. And uh, I spoke to Neil Scarth, the principal for Frost Consulting, and this is his exact quote. We believe that the ability of asset managers to demonstrate the alignment between fund research budget budgets and the investment strategies agreed upon with asset owners will be a key competitive differentiator. The ability to maximize ROI on research spend will increase returns 
asset owners will increasingly benchmark asset manager research spending as an adjunct to trade cost analysis. So there you go. I mean, that's, you know, this clearly that's going to benefit him, but, uh, you know, so we'll see. I think it's, it's definitely an interesting take. Agelos is, uh, how long, how long has he been with us for now? A couple months. That's about two, three months. Maybe, so I guess. it was good on him to, you know, take a, you know, an interesting take on, on something. I mean, from your, have you dealt a lot in, in the research space on the buy side or? No, I mean, you know, obviously it's talked about, obviously with the fixed income, uh, the fixed income industry is going to face some new um, regulations stemming from MIFID II um, about research. So, you know, it all kind of, it's, it, you know, it's not one of the hot button issues sure. over here in the U.S. Sure. Um, it, as much as it is, say, in Europe. Sure. All right. So let's move on to some non-fintech stuff. And, uh, you know, we haven't talked about it at all. And that's because my partner despises it, but the NBA is heating up. We're right now, uh, you know, last, uh, not, not last night, but uh, two, uh, Monday night, uh, it was decided that the uh, uh, the Warriors will advance now to the NBA Finals against the Cleveland Cavaliers, a rematch of last year's final in which the uh, Warriors won. Um Last night went to Game Seven. Before that, they they were down. The Warriors were down three one. On the other side in the East, uh, the um, the Cavs were up to nothing. It's been so good you can't even remember the damn names of the teams. You know what it is? I'm just busting my tail for you. I'm writing up stories all the time. I go to bed early so I can wake up early, get in on time. So I've been missing a lot of the games. But uh, it's weird, you know. Anthony, you and I spoke about this earlier. It's been Good series, not good games. And what I mean by that is the actual games haven't been really that close, but the actual series have. I mean, this one went to uh, this one went to seven games. The Western Conference Finals went to seven games. The Eastern Conference Finals uh, went to six games. There were a couple other seven game series before that. So close series games, not so. Yeah, I think that uh, you look at. The Cavs series, I looked up uh, the average win um, between two teams. So the average win for or the average uh, margin differential, score differential for the winning team was uh, 22.5 points, with only game four being less than 15 points. Uh, Golden State uh, was closer, but uh, it was still 15.5 point uh, point differential, uh, with the closest game being game six, uh, six point uh, game in game one. Um, the last game seven was certainly interesting, but you know, within the last minute, you knew who was going to win. You know, the, these playoffs for the NBA have lacked a defining moment right now, but and that can all change in the in the finals. The finals will always, you know, usually kind of decide, you know. You know it, what people remember going forward. Every now and again, you have these great, you know, conference championships. Fair enough, um, but I mean, as a hockey fan, you know, I look at you know the Sharks beat the Blues in six. Um, just a crazy high scoring for hockey uh, for hockey standards anyway. Series uh, where he had 25 goals combined in the final three games of the series, and he had Pittsburgh beat Tampa in seven. Uh, that included two overtime games, four games decided by a single goal, uh, including a game seven that uh, finished two to one. And then you start off on the same night. You had a uh, game one of the Stanley Cup. Uh, Third period was just electric. One of the best periods of hockey I've seen uh, in so long. Uh, both goalies, Matt Murray for Pittsburgh and Marty Jones for uh, San Jose, were awesome, especially Jones. But it was just so good. But then what had me laughing is I looked at John Orand of uh, Sports Business Journal. 
He uh, put out a tweet, overnights in the San Francisco market. A source says the OKC Golden State was around a 30.9. Sharks pen came in at around 5.3. So <laughs> clearly hockey is the dominant sport here in America. You want me You want me to tell you how to fix hockey? How, yes, Dan. How do you fix hockey? So, and I'm not going to take credit for this. I might have heard this like on Bill Simmons or I might have heard this. Dave, Dave Damashek Dave Damashek might have said this, but this is how you fix hockey. First of all, hockey cannot be played anywhere where you can't play hockey outside at some point during the year. So that means no hockey in Florida, no hockey in, in Southern California, no hockey in Arizona, no hockey in Texas. I'm with you. It's I'm out, with you. Right? I agree. Second, no, no East and no West. U.S., Canada. U.S. teams, Canada teams. Now, they don't have to be comprised of U.S. and Canadian players, but you have the Canadian division and you have the U.S. division. So... The finals could be Chicago against Edmonton, or it could be Montreal. Wait, against... wait, wait! This is such a stupid idea because what are you going to put a team in none of it? You know, it's like there are only so many. Idea. There are only so many Anthony, cities Anthony, that is, can support. What are what would you what what are one of, what is the, what considered one of the most popular teams in the NFL? One of the most popular, one of the most popular teams, teams in the NFL is the Green Bay Packers. Green Bay is, I believe, it could be different now because. Uh, because of the Jets, but I believe is the smallest market of the four professional sports teams. Yet it has a massive following. Now, yes, you can say the tradition, the history of the Green Bay Packers. But if you gave a team to, um, well, first of all, Quebec City needs to get a hockey team. Exactly, because it failed miserably last time it was in Quebec City. You understand that, right? That they've tried having teams all over Canada. Well, the, and Islanders, they financially the, Islanders, team, the Islanders team is doing so terrifically well that they're going to have to move back, agree, now, that, yeah, back I, now out to Nassau. Regardless, you put teams... You put teams all along the, the the southern coast of Canada. You put teams all in the north. Give North Dakota a team. Give Montana a team. Give Wyoming a team. You're telling me those states wouldn't eat up the fact that they finally have a professional sports team? Give them all a team. They'll eat it up, and that's what we do. We do. Can, can I jump in here, Canada. Dan? Can I jump in here, Dan? When we talked about the NBA, even though I hate the NBA, I came in with some research, some numbers, some stats. You just came in with just some of the dumbest <laughs> <laughs> I don't need research to tell you that when a team from San Jose is playing in the Stanley Cup Finals, no one's watching the Stanley Cup Finals. I agree that you know you you should move teams up north, consolidate, have fewer teams, but you know there are there are not enough cities in Canada as much as Canada. There are not enough people in Canada so as much idea. as they love uh, hockey to sustain a ton more hockey. So here's another idea. Instead of expansion, why not retention? Why not bring the teams in? Why not have fewer teams? Have them be better. Teams in Canada, teams, teams in. in Why not in have US. no war and uh, you know it's it's money, these buddy. Are, it's greed. Yeah, I understand. These are ideas though, because hockey is never going to move above that fourth. It'll always be considered one of the four majors, but it's never going to jump. Ba- I mean, I get. I would. I would consider baseball the third third most popular sport. You'd probably consider basketball the third most popular sport. Regardless, hockey will never jump above either of those in terms of the, the grand scale. Does it have to? It doesn't have to, right? It can still survive and be viable. And I I loved watching game one of the Stanley Cup Finals. Are there ways to make it better? Yes. But will it, was it ever? I mean, there was a short period of time there. But once the 70s and 80s rolled around, basketball had already usurped hockey. Um, Is it okay you know, so- to just be okay? Is that what we're shooting for, Anthony, in life?
Yes, in this case, yeah, to say that to say that uh, you know the lacrosse men's lacrosse uh, professional league will become the fourth major sport. Should they one day try? Yeah, no, no. never. No, that's so find your niche. It's not not a popular enough sport. No, people that say that are idiots, but we won't get into that. Uh, uh, Rook, you want to touch on uh, on Gawker and Peter Thiel? So, for those of you that haven't you know heard, um, Gawker you know, has not done well, uh, not done well, Gawker, Gawker got sued by Hulk Hogan, uh, Terry Bollet for posting his sex tape, and, uh, basically, uh, well, do you know what the, the number was, it was, so it was, let's, let's just put it this way, rather than get into this, you can read on Gawker, if you don't already know about it, it's an interesting story, um, but basically, uh, Gawker, um, I just posted a sex tape of oh, Hulk Hogan, it's not so easy now to condense, yeah, no, um, but I'm not gonna get that, uh, so they lost. Uh, the lawsuit went against them. A New York Times article revealed and uh, that uh, Peter Thiel, um, billionaire Peter Thiel, uh, had basically financed the whole case against um, against Gawker. Uh, reason being uh, was that in a December 2007 article, um, they basically outed him as being a homosexual. So he has basically made it his... Um, you know, quest to just destroy uh, Gawker, and as a result, you know, it, it, now tell me about the, the 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 trial won't go. It's that's it, right? They're going to have to pay this lawsuit. Uh, n- well, they were trying to get a no. They 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 were trying to get a completely new trial, and they failed at doing that. But there still is the entire appeals process, so now they can continue to appeal it. But there's no chance of them getting this thrown out getting this entire trial thrown out so i guess that the way that you know it comes down to is you know i i hated that article and I, god it was just i don't understand why you know i you can have interesting things but can't people have some private lives god they had the one male escort and Condé Nast cfo story that was just an abomination of a freaking story um obviously the hulk hogan sex tape and then it can be a furiating and infuriating website uh because they can take the high road one minute and then the low road next minute without ever acknowledging that contradiction um you know nick denton it's easy not to like that guy um with that being said i do read i love gizmodo i read deadspin regularly uh kotaku and life hacker i check out here and there so in that you know gawker empire there's a lot of things I like. There's a lot of good journals. I know a bunch of the journals that are or that have worked there. Um, so, but people need to be entitled to private lives. When I first heard it, I was like, you know, good for Peter Thiel. You know, I was right. You know, but the more I think about it, you know, I, I was reading Jack Schaefer. I guess that he did encompass something that I thought. If he had a valid case against Gawker, shouldn't he have brought it up uh, in his own name and not use Hogan as his go-between? This is from Jack Schaefer of Politico. Um, and that, you know, use the term uh, shopping for victims by a slated billionaire. Um, also, Thiel, he's, a board of the, he's on Facebook's board of directors. Uh, Gawker and Facebook are media entities competing with one another for online ad revenue. You know, I guess the way that I took about it is there, on one end there's the... You know, in journalism, we're always quick to defend. Oh, you got to protect the First Amendment right to the death. But then a lot of times you start to sound like the NRA and saying that there's no gray area. It's just black or white, you know, and we're going to lose all of our press freedom if we go one way. We're going to lose the other way. Um, one of my favorite 
uh, writers, uh, reporters, uh, is a guy, Chris Jones, who was with Esquire. I believe that he's uh, leaving the magazine now, but um, he wrote a tweet just says, and I think this encapsulates it, but it's possible to believe in both the free press uh, and one that isn't wanton or reckless. You know, Gawker has been reckless so many times. I can't feel bad for them, but also I can't support the fact that Peter Thiel's out there as well, you know, just saying I'm going to attack my enemies with 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 money when they are wrong. If you think they're so wrong, you take up the case in court. Don't be, you know, the money man behind it. I guess that that's my takeaway from it. Uh, I disagree in the sense that I think that this is awesome. I think he's awesome. It's awesome that he's kicking them in the teeth. I think they deserve to be curb stomped. Uh, I think that they're a joke how they've done so many, so many things wrong. And they, like you said, they try to take, they say, oh, we take the moral high ground and they take the low ground. I am, I've never had to come out. I'm, I'm straight, but I can't imagine how horrifying it would be to be outed to the entire public arena when you aren't when you, that's not what you're looking for. I heard read stories about how he was he was really concerned because some of his financiers, some of the people we were working with, were from Saudi Arabia, and they you know maybe not might not want to work with a, sec, a homosexual because of their religious beliefs and stuff. So it put some of his business in jeopardy. It's such an awful. I think that's such a despicable thing to do for page views. Because let's face it, that's what it has. It was the same thing with the Condé Nast story. It has nothing to do. It's one thing if you are a hardcore right-leaning uh, congressman that bashes yeah, you're coming gays, out against gays and bashes, you know, and and bashes their rights. But then on the side, you're getting you're getting mail hookers. That there's a newsworthiness to that story. But if you're a Kanye West uh, executive that just happens to be cheating on his wife with with a gay guy, it's not sure. You can say that's not right to cheat on to cheat on your spouse or whatever, but you can't write a story about that, and you're just writing a story about it to get page views, and that's what they've done. So they do this time and time again, and they make their bed, and now you got to sleep in it. Now you, the finally the the. I don't know what the saying is. The roosters come to roost, or whatever the hell it is. The the hens that come home. The roost, I don't know. Yeah. But good job. It, 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 it's really, really frustrating. And what makes it worse is you said it's so perfect. Den is such an unlikable character. I don't know if you read. He did an open letter to Peter Thiel on, on Gawker. I started reading and I had to stop. Wasn't even apologetic at all. Not once did he say, I'm sorry. No, it was just like antagonizing him. How can you do this taking pot shots at him? I would love, and you know, I'm, sh- I know there are good writers at all those sites that have nothing to do with this, but at the end of the day, man, you hitch, you hitch your wagon to a horse and you guys hitched your wagon to this horse, knowing that there were going to be some highs and there was going to be some lows. And guess what? You're in the middle of a low right now. So don't cry and moan about how this isn't fair. We weren't there for that. You guys knew this is how they made their name. It was stuff like this, how they made their name. So think there's any lasting implications from a billionaire going in and destroying another um destroying a media company when he also has a financial interest in seeing that media company uh destroyed how much are they how much is facebook and gawker really competing we're not talking about that's you don't know salesman that's definitely there's definitely competition twitter and facebook i understand that but but it's it's a news it's a news site okay so you're just but you're fine with this yeah, I think that you know what? If he has the means, it's a it's a free country. You can do what he wants. Want to take him down? They're like honestly, they're just scumbags. Really, honestly, that entire site is just so awful. I hate everything about. It. I read any anything I read on that. It just makes me makes me so so freaking angry. So they deserve what they get. 100%. I don't have a problem with it. He's got the money. 
Why not? Who cares? You know, you, you don't do stuff like this and stuff, and it won't happen to you. Don't. Uh, I'm just going to get really angry. That's so what happens when Sheldon Anderson doesn't like a story in New York Times and just starts beating them over the head. Well, New York Times will have better processes and editorial judgment in place to not make these type of mistakes. At the end of the day, Gawker made a mistake. Do you not agree with that? Yes, and as a media company, you have to be allowed to make mistakes because New York Times made plenty of horrible, horrible mistakes in their career. Every every media company is. You do this long enough, you're going to make some terrible, bad judgment calls. Have they I mean, obviously, with what we cover, it's not going to be you know that bad, but you know... In the in those kind with those kind of high stakes, those kind of you know public views, have they shown a consistency of continuing to make mistakes and not only make mistakes, mistakes that greatly exponentially? Have you seen the page view numbers on that Hulk Hogan story? It was astronomical compared to everything else. Like let's not say that this isn't you know the New York Times can publish a story with oh that was a forged document they shouldn't have done that. That's one thing. These guys are doing things they know they shouldn't be to get astronomical page views. I got you. Listen, I don't like, you know, what, don't compare, what they're doing. Don't compare Gawker to the New York Times. No, God damn it, Dan. Jesus, why do you, you don't have to go there. I, I did not say that. I said that there is now a legal precedent that's being set that you are, you, that advocating billionaires through third parties with no transparency, a jury ruled in favor of, um, in front of Hulk Hogan, yes. thinking that was Hulk Hogan that was paying for it. And when Rowdy was a right-wing billionaire that was behind that whole financing, I'm again. I I'm not 100% yes or no on this. I think there's I I I can't support Gawker and like that article is terrible. But also, you know, there 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 has to be a little bit of worry that for other media outlets, and that's why I think that you've seen other media outlets that are you know very traditional. Your Washington Post, your New York Times, that have looked at this very warily and don't like the precedent that was set. But. He didn't pay the jury to make that ruling. He paid the lawyers to support Hulk Hogan. Financing of people's uh, cases is a long practice. It's been around it's, forever. Yep, it's it's legal, but again, I, I have a problem with that whole. It's dirty. If you have a problem with it, you kind of create your own lawsuits. If there was something that that was wrong, you should have brought it up in a lawsuit. Um, that's where I stand. Well, it is hot outside, but it is chilly. In our podcast studio. Uh, and on that note, I think we'll let it lie here. A uh, few more announcements. You still have, at this point, one one day left to vote for the Waters rankings, 30 categories. June 3rd. It closes June 3rd, Friday. June 5th. Uh, June 3rd, yeah. So one day. What? No, they can vote till June 3rd. Friday, the, the rankings close. One day. Today's not June 2nd. Well... See, we like to do a little thing on the podcast where we pretend that we're recording on Thursday. <laughs> and Anthony just blew that up in my face. So, surprise, guys. We're not recording this on Thursday. Today is Tuesday. I have an obligation that I won't be in the office for. So, yeah. Uh, so And moving on. <laughs> so, um, June 3rd at 11.59 p.m., the voting closes. The five categories, trading services, trading tools, data management, compliance, risk management, and the back office, infrastructure, and connectivity. Remember, no personal emails, no vendor, PR agencies, and uh, make sure you use your business email. The luncheon where the winners will be announced will be July 14th in New York City. Also, I'll be heading to Toronto next week. Uh, so I'll be there on the 7th for our uh, information and technology conference, which I'll put the link in. But if you're in the area, want to grab a drink, want to meet up for a meeting, please reach out and uh, let me know. Uh, Anthony, anything else you'd like to uh, add? I got nothing.
As always, thanks so much for listening. Have a great weekend, and we'll talk to you next week. Thank you.